This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the virtual studio is Sally Christie. Hello, hello. Hello. And Paul Anthony Nelson. Hello, Paul. Hello, Flick. Enjoying the the comfy host chair. Yeah, I am. Actually, mine is very uncomfy. I lost my my cap, my chair cushion the other day. So I thought you were about to say a... you lost your cat and that you sitting <laughs> on Dave. Oh, mate, I always wish that. We've, we've got a story about Dave coming up. We're spotlighting the work of award-winning Melbourne filmmaker Emil Corton Wilson and revisiting two of his films. His 2008 documentary Bastardy on national treasure and local legend Uncle Jack Charles and Emil's very first feature-length fiction film from 2011, Hail, starring Daniel P. Jones, who's the subject of his documentary short, Cicada, from 2009. So Emil Cotton Wilson is an exceptionally prolific filmmaker. Uh, He wrote, directed and produced his first feature-length documentary, Chasing Buddha, at the tender age of nine. Over the course of his career, he's directed over 20 short films and five feature-length films, And he's got a handful due for release next year. Um, Some highlights include Ruin from 2013, which was shot in Cambodia, and The Silent Eye from 2017, which is this impressionistic um, portrait of the late jazz pianist uh, Cecil Taylor, and also includes um, the Japanese dancer and actor Min Tanaka. It's one of my favourites. Emil is also a highly acclaimed visual artist. His latest project, Eden, Eden, Eden at 50, was released online last month as part of a 50-city worldwide event celebrating the controversial French author Pierre Guillotin. Um, I actually have a funny little story about Emil. So this weekend, um, as part of lockdown, I purchased, my partner and I purchased as kind of an ostentatious lockdown purchase, we got kayaks. And so this weekend was the first time we were able to go out onto the river. And um, during this time, we passed two people who were stuck in this rowboat. And uh, we uh, kind of checked in that they were okay. And I noticed that I actually lost one of their oars and it was sort of floating down the river. So I paddled back in my kayak and got their oar for them and um, tried to sort of tie a bit of rope to the boat, to the kayak and and sort of tug them in. Um, It was unsuccessful. So we just were like, okay, we're going to just go to um, the boathouse and let them know what's happened. Anyway, I get to the boathouse and Emil is there (laughs) filming something. And um, it turns out the two people in his boat, in the boat, were his um, producers. So, wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> such a funny little uh, coincidence. Um, anyway, look, we, uh, all three of us, had the pleasure of speaking with Emil the other day. And here is our interview. 
So thanks so much for joining us, Emil. It's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be here. How have you actually been going? I know that's such a loaded question. We're a city in lockdown at the moment. How have you as a filmmaker been able to continue with your work? Yeah, we've been really lucky uh, just because we've just come off the back of a whole bunch of shooting on three different feature doc projects. So we've just had a lot of post-production to do anyway. So thankfully that and lockdown has um, meant for yeah, like quite a bit of stuff getting done, which is lovely. The only thing is, yeah, the, the Film Vic stipulated that, you know, the, if you have a feature pr- production, it has to have been in uh, production since before lockdown to allow you to continue doing any kind of activity during the, the stage four. So, yeah, we've been, we've been comparatively okay. I definitely feel for a lot of colleagues and friends, though, certainly ones who have interstate stuff planned and yeah. I did notice that as I was going through my notes, um, you've got so many films in uh, on the go at the moment that it was difficult to kind of round them all up. Are you able to give us a little insight into some that you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it does sound a little absurd, but <laughs> to, to put things into perspective, three of them are, are very, very small scale productions and, and admittedly they're the kind of projects that could just as easily be in one of them is for Melbourne Arts Festival and another is for like a like a in video installation kind of context as well as more experimental film festival end of the street. So, but yeah, to, to give you a rundown, there's a, a project called Body Music, which is about um, this amazing uh, New York-based, uh, originally New York-based Jewish-American composer called Charlemagne Palestine. He came out and played here a couple of years ago. He's in his mid-70s now, based in Brussels. That's sort of like an exploded biopic about him. Uh, there's a project we're doing a time travel um, free jazz portrait of Cecil Taylor, the iconic free jazz pianist who I, I lived with for a couple of years um, in, between 2014 and 2016 in New York. There's a project called Underwood, which is um, sort of a mosaic study of young people in Oklahoma. There's a feature narrative project called Carnation, which um, we've just wrapped up and that should be coming out next year. And then there's a thermal imaging feature called Traces, which is looking at the human body at the moment of death and um, looking at the human body cooling after death. So it's a thing we shot in a hospice in Denver last year. And then um, finally, there's a feature film, a feature length doc called Days of Fire, which is another death themed um, documentary, a verite um, piece, which is a study of the last eight days of a man's life in Aberdeen, Washington, that we shot last year. We're just doing pickups for it at the minute. So, you blacker, you should be doing <laughs> like, what have you been doing, mate? <laughs> I know. I know. Sometimes I, I really berate myself at night. It's yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm not joking, actually. <laughs> it was actually it's been such a such a task, sort of bringing together all your work. And I've been I've been over the over the last week, sort of drawing out some common threads in your work. And the two films that we're talking about on today's show are Hail and Bastardy, um, your documentary from 2008. And something that really struck me was that a lot of your the subject matter in your films is really quite challenging. Um, and, and uh, you know, many of your characters in your films suffer um, terrible hardship and there's a lot of violence as well. Um, and your documentaries often feature um, very honest portrayals of uh, prison systems and some of the attending uh, social issues in relation to race and socioeconomic status. I'm really curious, um, how do you manage not to turn these stories into, you know, poverty porn and kind of retain a sense of honesty and compassion in your work? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think, I, I think it's, it's a couple of things. It's probably a composite of uh, having a, a, a social worker father who worked for 25 years 
with um, homeless youth, with disadvantaged parts of Melbourne community in the western suburbs predominantly, but also in crisis centres in the CBD in Melbourne. And so from age 15, earlier really, age 10, you know, uh, he would sometimes bring people home and, and weekend kind of stories and just, you know, nightly family um, conversations were you know, often centred around these issues. So it's kind of been ingrained in me from a very early age. Uh, well, yeah, just that uh, to try to humanise and uh, find out the background and, and the stories of the people who otherwise might be written off for whatever reason. That's what's one part of it. And I think the other part that, that grew as a process or as a methodology through my 20s or certainly through the production of Varsity, uh, I, I realised over the course of making that film, which was seven years, there was something really beautiful about, you know, usually filmmaking experiences at their worst can be like a little, you know, can be quite transactional between a doco subject and a, and a filmmaker. I realised about two or three years into the filming of Varsity, there was a lull in the filmmaking process and, and Jack actually came to live with me for a period of time. And it was this really lovely uh, part of the filmmaking whereby the camera was put down. Jack and I just became very good friends. So then when, when the camera was picked up again, it was really more akin to two friends deciding to make a film together rather than a documentarian asking a subject to participate in something. And so I've tried to maintain that degree, that type of relationship or, you know, or almost... Um, you know, sort of try to fabricate that type of, um, make sure that's a foundation of anything I've done since. Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely comes across in, in Bastardy. And I was thinking, did you not have a similar sort of connection as well with um, Cecil Taylor, with um, Silent Eye? And even with, um, you've worked a lot with uh, Daniel Jones um, in both the short film and also Hale. Um, it's really interesting that I find often you're kind of bearing witness to their to their stories. And I imagine, you know, you talked before about, you know, Jack being able to move in with you and I'm so curious about how you manage your time because you seem so involved in those projects and with those people. But then you've worked, you've you've covered almost what's well, five feature films. You've got um, a sixth one coming out very soon. How how do you even manage that sense of time in filmmaking? Yeah, look, that it it doesn't always go down. Like you don't always have the luxury um, to to spend as much time um, as you would like. Like certainly in Oklahoma. Um, you know, I probably cumulatively only spent maybe six months there with, with the, the cast and the, the friends that we made in that part of the world. Um, the Cecil Taylor film is a beautiful example. I mean, I, I, I tracked him down in 2014 uh, through a poet friend and uh, found his address and kind of camped outside his house for, you know, maybe 10 hours a day for about a week and he came to the door after a week and said, I've, I've been watching you outside my house. <laughs> You look very patient, so you should maybe come inside and clearly you'd like to talk. So we had dinner that night. And, um, Were you literally I, throwing stones at his window? Was well, it, was, it was definitely, it was, in retrospect, when I tell this story, it feels like slightly stalkerish and slightly <laughs> obsessive. I, I mean, I suppose it was a little obsessive, but, um, and then, yeah, it was, it was, very, it was just, um, wonderfully, uh, serendipitous that he, he was in need of a kind of, archivist slash carer at that point in time because he was already like 85 Hmm. so I ended up living with him for yeah on and off for like about 18 months I mean you know in total not not straight through I would say like maybe seven or eight months and yeah just cooking for him and and 
and then you know and and filming and, and conducting these extensive interviews so that's that's like a that's a really deep dive that's longer than I live with Jack or Danny or anything like this mm-hmm. but you know I, other instances like a film like Ruin that we made in Cambodia you know that was a lot faster that turnaround was you know more akin almost to a regular feature film so you can't always do it but it's it's like an ideal I suppose so just listeners, so if you ever answer a, a rental ad and become Emil's housemate, you will have a film made about you. <laughs> or if you see someone throwing stones outside, welcome them in. I'm also curious, so you, you started film, um, your first debut feature-length de- documentary was Chasing Buddha, which is um, about uh, your aunt, who is uh, an ex-Catholic, ex-political activist and feminist and a, a Buddhist nun, um, Rabina Corton. So I'm curious, um, a lot of the, the footage from that doco is about her um, conversations with death row um, inmates in the Kentucky State Penitentiary and in Hale, um, the film that we're going to be talking about tonight, you kind of return back to um, an ex, ex-prisoner ex as well um, in Daniel and um, in Bastardy as well there's moments of the prison system. I'm curious as to like how, what your um, either attraction to these stories is or, or what you think um, it tells us about humanity. Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that, that is, is, is shifting constantly f- for me. I think... It's a few things. It's it's partly uh, you know there's a, there's a natural uh, kind of orator in so many uh, people who've spent time in prison. You know, there's not a lot else to do other than tell stories. And as as Daniel Jones put it once, very very um, in his, his erudite manner, he said, you know, I've I've told so many stories to judges and coppers over the years. Um, this acting bag isn't so much of a stretch. So like <laughs> it's 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 partly that, and it's also on a deeper level or on another level, it's really to do with, I think, uh, I'm just very drawn to, I'm drawn to artists who need to make work to survive or if they don't create their work, they might sort of perish. And I think that degree of uh, intensity of living and also looking at uh, how people have just dealt with an adversity that's certainly outside my uh, realm of you know experience. So it's, it's, partly just you know uh, compassion partly curiosity and and empathy and then also um it's it, you know it's also just there's a there's a certain kind of charisma and even just the turn of phrase you know um i love i'm i'm quite obsessed with like the not only the the, the lexicon like prison lexicon but prison lexicon through the generations and uh, i remember i worked at a theater company for ex prison mates for a, a couple of years back in 2005 and just we'd t- chat to the guy who was 65 years old who'd still talk about like tinder boxes and all these amazing um, turns of phrase from the 40s and 50s through to the young guys and how those things would overlap. And, yeah, that stuff is, it was also really fascinating to me. And how do you find your subjects in terms of – because obviously, you know, there, there's some that are more organic, but then you've got locations as far flung as Cambodia and Oklahoma and, yeah, how, how, does, how do these things come – how do these subjects come within your sphere? Is it someone you seek out or is it more serendipitous? It's, it's really a, a wonderful mixture and I, I find the, the more that you're kind of open to uh, things arising or, the, I mean, without getting too sort of philosophical about it, but the more you sort of have a, a, a very kind of open, porous uh, way about you both when you're shooting and also in the research process films often blossom from other films very organically mm. so 
this project, um, Days of Fire, for example, that that came out of the research process for traces. We were looking to we were talking to hospices and death doulas and 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 death positivity groups all around the world, so in Europe and in the States. And the subject of Days of Fire, this gentleman, um, Bob Rosenzweig, he heard about this film and he contacted us and said, look, I'd like to participate in this movie, but what I'd really like you to do is come live with me for a week and document the last week of my life. Um, and so that was a, you know, and that was a, a, a film like that to fall in your lap. It was partly, you know, serendipity, but then also it's sort of born of this. I mean, we've been researching that film, the 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 uh, thermal project for two years at that point. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think the, the, the biggest uh, thing we try to group my producers and I, cause I, I certainly don't want, I have a, a wonderful team of, you know, like upwards of like eight producers um, on these different projects and stuff. So it, it's, it's definitely by no means, I mean, yeah. And it, uh, kind of a one person show, but it's just a, there's a, there's a really lovely, uh, I don't know, like a, a We've developed a way of working that's just very, very cheap <laughs> mm. and very, very fast when it needs to be. So um, that also allows you to take on board these extra things um, because I would say 50% of the projects that I outlined earlier, they're not Screen Australia funded projects. They're not film big funded projects. They're projects that I self-finance um, and then tend to get, try to find money for in the back end. So. Mm. You've always struck me as that kind of filmmaker, like somebody that isn't as reliant as funding on funding bodies as others. Like you've seen always more of a self-starter, more of a self-generator, um, true indie. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to, to, to hear you confirm that. Yeah. Well, and you know, a lot of that came out of, I, I actually, you know, I spent a lot of my twenties going through many, many years of kind of development hell with two feature scripts that went down a much more conventional route. You know, I went through, five or six rounds of script development funding and lots of script editors and lots of script reports and neither film ended up getting made. So mm. I spent, you know, close to seven years developing these two movies that never were never produced. And I think that was really like a, a bit of a watershed moment where I was like, oh, I'm nearly 30. I just spent, you know, that long in these two uh, sort of, yeah, aborted attempts at making a film. So how do I um, pivot and try to do something in a very a drastically different way? One of the things that stood out to me, and of course we're a film show, so we're focusing in on your feature films and some of your short films, but um, you've also been in- involved with so many different art installations and often connected with the film work you've done. What do you see as the relationship between art and film in your career? Like it seems to sort of burst through and like your most recent project, Eden, Eden, Eden at 50, it's sort of on that precipice. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think it's really just about... Uh, I really love making stuff mm. you know? and I love making, I love exploring stuff. I love collaborating with people. I love throwing that open, um, taking different kinds of risks and kind of spinning the compass and finding different entry points into work. So um, that's where the, the installation work comes from because that's, you know, one example to give you, we were filming um, this project in Oklahoma and we were outside of 7-Eleven. It was like one o'clock in the morning. This homeless gentleman, this schizophrenic gentleman came up to us, started talking. Um, I was just really absolutely bowled over by his kind of beatific manner. He said this unbelievable kind of charged manner. 
And I just said, would you, would you mind closing your eyes and standing under this street light for a couple of minutes? We'd like to take a moving image portrait of you. And he obliged. And then that piece became a, like a six minute video installation work that ended up at the national portrait gallery, um, in, um, in Canberra. Yeah. So it was just these kind of, it was during a, for a diff, totally shoot for a totally different movie. This gentleman was, I just saw him on the street and then you could just, you know, it was a moment. And then that can sort of, I remember once hearing this beautiful thing from Albert Mazel's, the documentary maker, when asked about what, what were his favorite films um, over the course of his, you know, his illustrious career. And he said his, his, the favorite things he'd shot were things that were never released. That, you know, he gave one beautiful example of he'd filmed, you know, a, a three-year-old girl on a New York subway um, falling asleep on her mother's lap. Hmm. It was like a three-minute shot. Uh, he didn't, I mean, he didn't have made an art practice, so he, you know, he didn't have a place to, to put that. But I, met that's, that, I heard that when I was 18 and that comment always stayed with me in a very profound way and I was like, well, why, why shouldn't you find a, a place to put those moments? So I think that's where the art stuff comes in. Not to make it sound like I'm just putting you know, off cuts into galleries. No, no. <laughs> no. It's very clear that through, through your work, and we're going to be talking about Hale, but um, there's so much um, artistic moments in it. And like the thing, the film that stands out for me, Silent Eye, I feel like that sort of feels transcendent as a film and also as a, an art installation in its own right in some way. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful work. Do you, because you've worked substantially with both features and documentaries, do you have a preference with features or documentaries? What do you prefer making? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I, I get I get very um, antsy at home not doing anything and I can't not be working on not only multiple things, but I really love writing something while I'm also shooting another thing while I'm also cutting something else. That's something um, that I I've become a little bit sort of uh, addicted to. So, yeah, I mean, I, the, the jumping between is, is really, it's all about, you know, the Sun I uh, was shot over three days. Mm-hmm. Um, days of Fire was shot predominantly over eight days. So I, uh, I love this idea of being able to get in and get out and tell a story in this very, uh, yeah, economical uh, way. And it's a... Whereas feature films are, I think, something else entirely. Again, entirely. You know, it's 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 a it's a whole other approach to craft. And yeah, it's funny. I, I was chatting to a cinematographer that I've worked with many many times. Jermaine, uh, we're doing these pickups in a couple of days, and we've worked together for like twenty years. And we're talking about this this idea of you know how, how do you keep trying to push your craft while keeping things exhilarating and, and new. And and you know, there's this there's such a well, it, it is an expectation. There's few filmmakers like Herzog um, who managed to keep, you know, switching lanes through their career. But for the most part, there's this expectation that, you know, your films need to get more ambitious in scale and go up in budget. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, you can get a wise yourself, certainly in, in, mm. in terms of like international financiers or certain parts of the American industry and stuff if, you, if you're off just making you know, weird experimental stuff all the time. But, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, you know, I'd love to make a $60 million action film or an $80 million something and would love to make a $15 something <laughs> the next week. Uh, every, everything interests me really. And that's, that might be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just thinking you're actually, you seem really lucky that you've had a career where you've just been, that's been almost defined by following your interest. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's true, man. I mean, I, I think, and that's been, you know, I, I, I'll be super honest, like I, I lived and still do live very, 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 very modestly and and um, don't own a car, don't own an apartment, don't own very much of anything, but um, I'd rather spend my money on, you know, making stuff. And also, you know, I, I've seen lots of friends and not even, you know, just, just peers um, kind of not even in cinema, you know, just get, just get stuck with, you know, the overheads of life yeah. and, um, and, you know, logistics of life get in the way and then you can't just duck over to the States for a week or you can't decide to, yeah. So I've tried to set up my life to be as, as fluid and kind of open as possible. Um, and it's worked to some, yeah, for the most part so far. <laughs> Amil, what have you got coming up next? Yeah, so coming out next in Melbourne, uh, there's a project called, yeah, Traces, the Thermal Imaging Project. That'll be out, I would imagine, mid to late next year in Melbourne and, and around Australia, um, depending on restrictions and social things hmm. of a corona nature. Um, and then there's a, another a feature narrative project that we shot in Oklahoma, um, which will also be out, I'd say, like mid to late next year. So, yeah, um, look out for those two for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a total pleasure. That was a really fun chat. Thanks, guys. If you've just tuned in, that was our chat with Melbourne filmmaker Emil Corton wilson And if you want to check out his extensive filmography and to watch his recent project, Eden, Eden, Eden at 50, head to floodprojects.com. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen with Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson, and myself, Flick Ford. I'm going to give up this drink. Start all over again. I could be anybody on stage. You've come into like a womb, you know, and you're born. When you're pushed out on stage, that's when you're born. When I uh, started robbing people, I put it under a classification of... uh, collecting the rent. Uh, Believe it or not, I own this area. I am patrolling. That was, of course, local legend Uncle Jack Charles, who is the wonderfully charismatic character at the centre of Emile Corton Wilson's sharply observed documentary, Bastardy. The film is an honest and intimate portrait of the Indigenous actor, musician and activist. It covers Jack's heroin addiction, his career in acting and even documents him scoping out houses to rob in queue. Paul, did you pick up any tips in this doco? About robbing houses? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, particularly about um, when somebody confronts you with an accusation, uh, which might be one of my favourite points in the movie, like when he's listening. It's like, so um, Mandy has said that you've um, you, you've done a house and you stole some things. She found your glasses. He's like, yeah. Oh, did she say that? Did she? Uh-huh. Oh, she said that. And then there's this huge pause and then, well, yeah, I did do it. <laughs> it's, I love this documentary. We, I um, saw it, uh, it um, I saw it nearly a decade ago, but um, revisiting again this week was such a joy. Um, it's just so, I don't know, I've heard some people describe it as basic, which is weird to me because I think this is one of the most 
purely intimate, almost uncomfortably intimate documentaries I've ever seen. Um, and it's it's be- a beautiful portrait uh, of of Jack. Um, and but it's so um, it's like so lived in and so um, so raw. And you're witnessing um, Jack Charles at you know over seven years of um, which is quite astonishing, really, um, of addiction, of acting, arrests, honors, homelessness, um, heartbreaking honesty, and it's yeah, it's quite. Um, it's quite confronting, but it's such a joy to be in the presence of this guy. And it's, but it's also so awful to watch him suffer at those, at, um, at those certain um, junctures. But um, yeah, I'd actually never heard of him before I saw this movie. Um, um, the first time. I saw oh, really? It. Yeah. Oh, back oh. in, back in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up watching some of his stuff. So. Um, right. Yeah. And I remember my, um, yeah, I remember knowing so much about his theatre performances. I'm ne- I'd never seen him actually in plays, but um, yeah, it was something. Um, I suppose it, m- most people probably know him from just being around Melbourne. <laughs> I think I yeah. asked him on the bike path the other day. <laughs> <laughs> but and and it's just so and there's something about his yeah his his humour and his grace, even when he's in these you know he's shooting up or getting carted off to prison or uh, it's just this beautiful. Yeah, there's beautiful grace about him. Also, the fact that he's so tiny and mm. just he's, he feels so vulnerable. You know, like there's a shot where he's being led into prison. It reminds me of that scene with Jodie Foster in the lift and Silence of the Lambs when she's standing with all the FBI agents and she's like up to their chests. And there's like Jack's being led into a prison cell and these two cops, you don't see their heads because they're so much taller than him. And you just feel for him so much. Um, and that's the thing. As you know, and you and you get this sort of uh, this gr- this multi-level portrait of a of a funny, charismatic, soulful, profoundly damaged and talented man, failed by racist policy uh, policies um, that which have robbed him from his parents, settled him into a loveless white family, and then into some frighteningly abusive institutional situations. And the fact that he's come out of this such a beautiful artist and and still so in touch you know with his feelings and, and such an openness to the world is 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 really beautiful and it's such and that's the thing as much as it hurts to see him fall before us time and again it's just an absolute pleasure to be in his presence to witness him to listen to his stories and i mean as far as we all know now he's doing really really well um so yeah um no i think yeah this this is i think this is a high watermark in australian documentary yeah, I remember a few weeks ago when we did our uh, focus on, on music docos and I did the Roland S. Howard doco and I was saying about how much I feel like that's a Melbourne film. Um, this really feels like a Melbourne film to me too in the sense that it, I, I feel like I've always seen Jack around Fitzroy throughout my teens and he's just a presence that's always been there. So, yeah, he's just this um, incredible Melbourne personality and, God, he's so charismatic, like just <laughs> what a charismatic subject. He's just such a beautiful, beautiful man. I think um, it's interesting when you're going in to do a documentary like this that is a character study that's going to, you know, um, take something like seven years and you don't know how it's going to pan out. There's There are three wildly different docos if we think about um, Isabel Peppard and Josie Hess's doco Morgana and um, 
uh, Hamlet Burger. Did anyone see that one? That oh, Helmet Burger actor. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. That's crazy. But um, these these three, and, you know, a bastard is like that as well. It's these character studies and these filmmakers don't know how this is going to turn out. And we get, I guess, the excitement as a viewer by seeing into these people's lives in such an intimate way and it is uncomfortable. But, um, yeah, I think this one is just such a beautiful story because, it, you know, it is a happy ending. Well, it, it really feels that way and it feels like um, Jack is now definitely a presence at MIF every year and... <laughs> Yeah, it's just there's so much confronting um, material in this documentary but it's handled in such a delicate way where when um, did the interview flick you talked to Emil about how do you not make something poverty porn and, yeah, he is incredible as a director with being so tender with things that are so confrontational and, um, yeah, could just be exploitative but you know he doesn't cross that line and it yeah really incredible incredible film and an incredible slice of Melbourne. Absolutely I'm glad that you um felt that way as well with with this kind of such a Melbourne film like absolutely I was uh, taking great joy in like spotting all the areas especially in my house I just thought it was like it's a lovely film just as an ode not only to to Jack but also the city of Melbourne and how much he's a part of that and like a fabric of of, of our city um yeah I also I, I did um I do think that um Emile's strength as a filmmaker is in having subjects who are actually more than more than that they're, they're collaborators they're friends they're people who are very very close to him or during the process become even closer so I think that there's that really comes through in this doco it's it's a beautiful um documentary and and very honest like very uncomfortably honest in mm. parts and but there, he, the, there's this restraint in in those scenes are being shown, but there's an understanding of why they're being shown, and also Jack's um, agency in those moments. It's it's not kind of like poor Jack, look at this situation. It's actually Jack being honest about this is what I've experienced. Yeah, it's this is the trauma that, that. Oh, sorry, Sal. It's very much that with the opening sequence where he very explicitly says this is part of who I am. If we're not showing this, this is not my story. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, for sure. And and that sense of, of how the past kind of surfaces into the future and the present, and I think that that is so apparent in this film. I, I think it's a it's an exceptional documentary and um, definitely well worth checking out. It is currently available uh, to stream on DocPlay. Um, or you can actually rent or buy it on Ozflix or Apple TV. Uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Sally Christie, and myself, Flick Ford. Just looking for a bit of work, mate. What are you looking for? Part time, full time, two hours, um, one day. You ever stolen from one of the shops? If I told you what went on in my head, You'd run a thousand fucking miles, and it's not because I want to hurt you. Because I can set you up so you can have everything in life that you could possibly ever wish. Hail was released in 2011 and was Emile's first feature-length fictional film. The film tells the story of Dan, who has just been released from prison and is reunited with the love of his life, Leanne. It stars 
Uh, Daniel P. Jones, who was the subject of Emile's 2009 documentary short Cicada as Dan, and also features Dan's real-life partner, Leanne. The film is a brutal and unrelenting narrative of a man's desperate attempt to change the reality of his situation. It's the subject of one of the chapters in my PhD thesis, and it's been called one of the best Australian films of the decade by The Guardian. Sal, this was the first time you'd seen Hale. Um, How did you find it? Yeah, yeah, so a first-time view for me. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I loved its sort of slow, gentle pacing, but one thing that particularly stood out for me is I think that um, in Australian cinema in particular we have this uh, trope that we rely on with criminality and that lovable larrikin and, you know, it's all kind of fun and games to be living this particular lifestyle when that's not the reality of it whatsoever. And um, Hale represents that in such a really good, you know, articulate way that we don't often see in Australian cinema. You know, we have things like Two Hands, Idiot Box, that kind of thing where it's, you know, um, these people are doing these kinds of things for a lark. But, yeah, this reality comes through here. Uh, again, even though this one is not a documentary, it's a feature, there was such an intense intimacy about it, particularly I think with the use of uh, extreme close-ups in the film, right from the word go, that we feel that we're invading this personal space that we should not be in, um, which, yeah, it, it made me feel uncomfortable as a viewer, but I'm guessing that that was um, Emile's intent so, yeah, really remarkable film. One thing that I was I read today, which I just loved, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favourite movies ever, and I read that um, Emile said when he was, you know, uh, making this film, one of the things that he looked at was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, and when dialogue falls down in that and when sound picks up and how important that is and how important that is in Hale and... I just I love the pairing of these two films. <laughs> I just never thought would ever be paired together. So that was you know, a real kind of revelation for me. But um, yeah, and also another thing that I, I felt really, I guess, deeply felt deeply authentic to me was the particular characters that are portrayed in this film. We see them having um, friendships, having deep conversations with male friends. So, you know, um, older males having uh, deep and meaningful conversations with other Australian older males, which we don't often see on screen. Um, Yeah, and I I did. I found it quite remarkable. And I, I saw a lot of masculinity that I don't think that we see in Australian cinema. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is based on, so Daniel, um, was uh, in the short Cicada and the first half of this film is actually based on Daniel's real experiences. So it has got that kind of threshold between documentary and and fictional film that kind of goes through all of Emile's work really in lots of different ways. So that's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing to touch upon with with that kind of blending of form, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting you say that, that the first half is based on his experience because... I found with oh, this because well, I sorry parts I should clarify parts yeah 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 but uh, it's interesting because I I feel like um, Amiel is an incredibly gifted filmmaker and is 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 really brilliant at being at being able to put sound and vision together but also 
get under people's like sort of create these intimate relationships that as we said earlier and as he said in the interview earlier that they're almost like collaborators mm. you know um, subjects of his films kind of make them with him um and daniel p jones and this is and is no exception as, as well as leanne lech but um because I found my I really responded to the first half of this film mm. um, of just following him, getting out of prison, getting back together with his girlfriend, going to the bar, trying to get his life restarted, walk, just hitting the pavement, looking for a job, trying to hold down the job, like all trying to stay out of drugs, stay out of things, and and that felt really authentic and and um, sort of like Australian Casavetes in a weird way. Mm. Um, th- the issues for me are when this suddenly becomes a genre movie, and mm. I think within and it just it like once the tragedy happens and we get into this sort of revenge story, it feels like we're in a different movie and so, not in yeah. a good way. It feels like I feel like, and it's funny because his other his 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 only other narrative feature to date, Ruin, um, which is set in Cambodia again kind of has a similar dynamic it's a similar kind of you know intimate portrait that ends up sort of becoming like a a well-worn genre thing i feel like there is a frustrated genre filmmaker within amiel Corton wilson who is trying to get out but it chafes against this other intimate documentary style you know i i disagree with you but i do feel like i've got a similar um insight into it in the sense that i do think there is two forces um, at play here. I did hear something about how the film is, the first half of the film is um, to do with, um, you know, Dan, Dan's, um, the first half of the film is kind of based on, you know, relatively linked up with Dan's real life. The second half of the film is what if that rage and that pain was externalised? And I think seeing it as something that may not be based anchored to a truth a seeing I actually see it as something that it rips away from reality at that second half so I read it as a kind of moment of um, almost wanting con- to connect up with Leanne who's in you know has um, to, he's wanting to reconnect with her and resurrect her so I think that like all of the imagery there's this like beautiful um, moment in which this horse is falling down from the sky and um because of like the wind around it and the way it's, I think it costs like blew the budget for the film. I'd, I'm not sure how they made this, but it um they the wind lifts up the horse and it kind of reanimates this this horse corpse and it's such a shocking image. And I think that the rather than it being um, a genre filmmaker and then an art um, filmmaker, I think the divide is more so his visual art, his role as a visual artist and mm. his role as a filmmaker and that's at what's play here but that's what I actually love about it <laughs> this is yeah. um, as you probably can tell it's one of my favorites um yeah I, I I do see your point though with it um in terms of there, there being a tension but I actually think it's a conscious decision yeah but there's moments like when he follows that woman home and then like breaks into a house and cuddles up like there's no repercussions to that scene like it's something that's incredible like it's like how the hell is it like is this going to end up what's he going to end up doing and then and then it's just forgotten about and then it goes to it and then there's a scene later on that's kind of feels very manufactured and it might indeed as you say it might be a a fantasy sequence in his head but it just sort of felt very like 
I don't know. It just didn't feel like that character. It didn't feel like that person. Yeah, that's interesting because I I'm really obsessed with uh, formal disruption in film, and I think that this film is tapping into narratives of of trauma and grief, and using the the formal stylings to to kind of communicate that. And I think that the disjuncture is 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 really intentional. Um, I do think there's something kind of fascinating about this um, line between vulnerable, um, vulnerable sort of a vulnerable man on screen and this excessive violence and the violence like I think this is I watch a lot of violent films and this was right up there with um, one of the hardest films I've had to watch. Um, so it's not a film I return to a lot. I purely um, go back to it for research purposes because I do find it a really difficult watch. Um, but I, I kind of agree with Sally with that tapping into a sense of Australian masculinity that I hadn't, um, it's not that I hadn't seen it on screen, I'd just seen it framed in a different way. So I, I think that the poeticism yeah. of this film is what lifts it to another level for me anyway. I think that the kind of masculinity that we see in Hale, like you're right, Flick, we have seen it on screen before, but it is framed in a way where we don't want to be with those these characters. We don't want to associate with them. Um, it, it, it's not framed in a way where we, as an audience, I guess, are wanting to spend time with them. We'll see their journey unfold, which is perhaps the unfortunate way of how it is in real life. If we see people that you know perhaps are ex prisoners, we're not, they're not going to get a job, etc., etc., etc. Which you know, Emil is is looking at here. People on the fringes of society as well. Mm. But yeah, I, I do. I, I did find the framing of masculinity here particularly like the big strength of the film for me yeah i just felt like it felt very endemic of that period in australian cinema like there was a time when we had there was uh there were films like snowtown and fell and uh, that it was echoed very much in, a, in another film that you loved sell and i didn't which was um acute oh, misfortune Last year, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just maybe you I know, just don't vibe with this subgenre of film. It's just you like know, um that was also the cinematographer that was also Jermaine. So um he's worked hey. on a lot of he's worked on all of um Emil's um feature films. I love his cinematography actually and um Emil gave Oh the cinematography is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Um yeah. but I do recall you both hating um or did you like acute misfortune Sal? No, Sally you- loved it. Oh yes. in my, yeah, in my top ten films of last yeah. year. I absolutely adored it. Loved yes, um, Daniel is amazing in that. Um, yeah, I really love that film. Um, <laughs> sorry, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just found like I, I guess it was at a time because I remember I didn't like Snowtown for the same reason. It was like there was just something about that was a prevalent thing at that point in time, and this came out of that. But I got to say, of all of those films, this Hail feels the most innovative. I think. I think it's the one that is the most stylistically interesting and like I said that first half slaps like I mm. love the first half I have, um, <laughs> I, I also think that the way in which he's capturing um the love story is actually quite tender and mm. they're bodies that you don't often see on cinema they're older bodies they don't look like this kind of Hollywood ideal that we've got and I think there's something just so honest about the portrayal and because he knows Daniel personally I think that really comes through and of course they're a real life couple so there's that that real intimacy between them that is captured and I don't know I'm a softie for that sort of stuff <laughs> and, and that's the thing like his whole filmography is full of that isn't it, it mm. it's like one thing like I, we talked about like I love how he He's just always defined by just following his interest. Mm. Like, I'm interested in this. I'll go to wherever that takes me. I'll get in this person's head. I'll, like, we'll live with that person. We'll collaborate with that person. And then he creates his unique character studies out of it. 
And I think that's super admirable. And I love yeah. the fact that he's out there doing that. He's certainly one of our most unique filmmakers. Oh, 100%. Yeah, for sure. Well, if um, you're interested, Hale is available to rent or buy on Ozflix. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford. We celebrated the work of Melbourne director Emil Corton Wilson. We revisited his 2008 documentary Bastardy, which is available to stream on Dockplay, or you can rent or buy the film on Ozflix or Apple TV. And we also uh, looked at Emil's feature-length debut, Hail, which is available to stream or buy on Ozflix. A very, very big thank you to Emil for speaking with us. His latest project, Eden, Eden, Eden at 50, is available to watch exclusively on the Flood Projects website, floodprojects.com. And do keep an eye out for one of his many upcoming releases, uh, Days of Fire, Carnation, Traces and Body Music. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. As always, we are eternally grateful to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and for cycling into the studio every week in rain, hail or shine, Carl Chapman, who also panels the show and provides producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 